0: Welcome to the Hustle Class Podcast. We have a quick disclaimer. All material presented within Hustle Class LLC is not investment advice, but for educational purposes only. Trading involves risk and you are solely responsible for your investment decisions and assume the entire risk of any trading you choose to undertake. Owners of Hustle Class LLC and its representatives are not registered as security broker dealers or investment advisors either with the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or with any state securities regulatory authority. Please utilize a registered investment or financial advisor to make any financial decisions. If you choose to invest without seeking advice from such an advisor or entity, then any consequences resulting from your investments are your sole responsibility. By utilizing Hustle Class LLC and our content, you are indicating your consent and agreement to our disclaimer. Welcome to the Hustle Class Podcast, it is your boy Jermaine and I am back at it again with another one As you can see, the audio is a little different this time around We had some technical difficulties, but, you know, we're going to try to make it work We're going to try to make it do what it do Um, I miss all of you, I'm glad that you've tuned in once more so I can give these gems, you know Um, It's been a very, very difficult week besides, um, you know Um, besides the software not working correctly and me having to kind of like change my software, um, I spent a lot of time with family, you know, so I was on family mode, wasn't really trying to record during family mode, and then, you know, I ended up taking a trip to New York, um, wanted to tune in to Market Mondays Live with Earn Your Leisure and Ian Dunlap, you know. You know, Ian Dunlap is probably my favorite investor of all time, and, you know, on my way there, I had a little hiccup, almost got stuck in New York, Um, So, you know, that that was also a hectic moment Getting back, you know, I had to, you know, recover, if you will So, you know, a lot's been going on But at the end of the day, man, I couldn't let you guys go into December without me dropping some gems and giving some fire So, you know what I'm saying, today we're going to have a great conversation It's going to be loads of information And it's all going to correlate in a really nice and concise manner Um, But you know, as usual, it's Hustle Class, you know how we do it. We're gonna start off with our lyrics from our Hustle playlist, all right? And, you know, sometimes the songs repeat themselves, sometimes the lyrics repeat themselves, but kind of like anything in the world, right? As we move through life, sometimes things might escape us. So it's nice to remind ourselves of the things that we've um, that we've liked to hear and the things that have motivated us so that we can have that extra motivation moving forward, right? So even if it is a repetition of the same song or some of the same bars or similar bars to another song, what we can remember in this is the fact that, oh, you know, I don't remember it. <laughs> But you know, it resonates with me. And so, you know, you use that and you apply it to your life and you keep it pushing. All right. So today we're doing um Larry June song. It's called Thug For It. Um, this is a song that I think I played the second or third most in 2021, according to my Apple Music. So, you know, it's a very, it's a very good song for, you know, hustlers like myself. Right? Um, and so the verse that we're gonna take today, or the the words we're gonna take from the song, is you know, I believe in miracles, but I still grind like it's. Oh, hold up, <laughs> I almost messed up. Okay, I believe in miracles, but I still grind like Tony Hawk in '98. My money straight. So it's not grinding like something. He's grinding like someone. All right, <laughs> I believe in miracles, but I still grind like Tony Hawk in '98. My money straight. You hear those bars? I bet. (laughs) So you know what I'm saying? We do believe in miracles, right? But there's a popular saying that goes a little bit like, heaven helps those who help themselves, you know, or closed mouth don't get fed, right? So even though we do believe and have faith that things will be all right, things will work out for our own good per, you know, our destiny and our purpose in this world, you know, part of that is going to be our work ethic because, you know, one thing that people that escapes a lot of people is the journey. The journey is part of the glory, you know? It's like you can just have it, um, but, you know, that journey, the people you meet along the way, the lessons you learn along the way, um, the small wins culminating into big ones, or, you know, one small victory leading to another leading to a huge one. So, you know, the journey is still very important, and I don't want any of us to lose sight of that, right? So we believe in miracles, absolutely. But we still grind like we're Tony Hawk in 98 Our money straight Scraping it, scraping it <laughs> Alright, y'all So, you know, those were our bars You know, I had to give it to you, you know, hot and ready Like it's Lil' Caesars or whatever Lil' Caesars, I need that sponsorship, holla at me um, Anyway, so, now, right, we're gonna get into the beef of what we're talking about today Oh man, it's about to get crazy So today we are talking about the wealth gap And what happened in 1971? My goodness. So y'all are about to get some bars right now. So a lot of people understand the current state we are in is like a culture, right? Um, You know, we can say it's, you know, let's talk about, we could talk about black people all day, right? Um, But we also talking about just disenfranchised people in general. Because not everybody who's out of a job, not everybody who's at the bottom of the totem pole when it comes to wealth is black. You know, there is... um, An overwhelming number, you know, of people who do fall in the black racial category who do happen to find themselves also in a poor state. Um, But, you know, that's one of the things that um, Fred Hampton was interested in. Fred Hampton was interested in bridging the gap between um, all poor minorities. So whether it be white, Hispanic, Asian, right, the poor communities and figuring out how can we get our wealth together so that we actually have an opportunity for freedom um, as other people have. Right. So, you know, today we talking, we talking that ish, for lack of better words, and you know what I'm saying, we gonna be getting into our wealth gap conversation, but like I said, you know, the culture, man, a lot of black people do happen to fall in the bottom of the wealth gap conversation, right, not at the top of the gap, but at the bottom of the gap, right, so, let's get into this conversation, right, so, in today, right, today's society, right, People are being, ordinary people, average people, are being priced out of every asset. Every single asset we're being priced out, right? Ask somebody today to buy Apple. Ask somebody today to buy Tesla. Ask somebody today to buy Microsoft. You know what they're going to tell you? It's too expensive. So what are are people going to do? They're going to buy penny stocks. They're going to buy meme stocks. They're going to buy all this cheap stuff hoping that it goes to the moon, Right, Because the actual value that you see in front of you We all have iPhones We all use Microsoft Word We all would like an electric vehicle one day You know, for the sake of cleaner energy Yet we don't invest in those companies We like investing in stuff we've never heard of Because somebody said it was a good idea Because we don't have enough money To purchase some of these assets They are too expensive at the dollar value Right, so in today's average and ordinary people are being priced out of every asset, right? And now we're going to take a trip to 1971 to help us understand how today's wealth inequality is partially, if not fully, a byproduct of inflation, right? Because we're talking specifically about the wealth gap and that particular disenfranchisement, right? There's a whole lot of other ways that minorities and black people have been disenfranchised over time and throughout you know, modern time. But right now, we're talking strictly about the wealth gap, right? And so we're going to talk about inflation and the role that inflation plays in this wealth gap, all right? Let's get it popping. So 1971, right? You might ask yourself, what's happening around 1971, right? So this is President Nixon, you know, post-Vietnam War era, right, of, you know, time, right? And so at this point in time, right, there's something called the Gold Exchange Standard, right, or the Bretton Woods Agreement, right? Now, this agreement basically says that foreign governments, right, across international waters, right, all over the world, would basically trade dollars for gold at a standard global rate. So I think it was, like, said $35 an ounce. It was something like that. I could be off. But basically, there was a situation where you're trading dollars for gold, right? We all know that gold is a store of value, right? That's why gold chains are expensive and, you know, things that are gold are considered luxury, right? Because we know that it's a standard of wealth to a certain degree, right? So foreign governments would trade dollars for gold at a standard global rate. And the U.S. controlled 70% of the world's gold. Talk about a world superpower. The U.S. controlled 70% of the world's gold, right? So currency was convertible to the dollar because the dollar was, you know, the the U.S. owned 70% of gold and we produced the dollar. So what other countries would do, right, because we own so much gold, it's like, okay, I can use dollars have value. I can use these dollars for my foreign exchange and my international trade, right, imports and exports. I can use those dollars because that is agreed upon currency across the world, based on gold, because U.S. has most of the world's gold. It's like a no-brainer, right? So basically what these countries do is they trade in their gold for dollars to use it for transactions because it's hard to transact gold, right? comes in bricks, comes in all this different stuff. Dollars, right? We know it as like like fiat currency cash, right? Money, paper, right? So it's a lot easier to transact than, you know, bricks or, you know, ounces or, you know, things of that nature, right? So that's why foreign governments are using the dollar, right? And this... It should be the case, right? Because, like we discussed, gold is supposed to be like a true international determination of value that can't be manipulated. It can't be manipulated, right? Technically, right? It's supposed to be the international determination of value. But during the 1960s, right? Pre 1971, the government was printing, the United States government was printing too much money for Vietnam and certain welfare programs. Right. That had to do with recovering from the Depression, World War Two, as well as Vietnam. Right. So we're in a tight spot. So in order for us to maintain, the government had to print money. But what happened as a result of them printing all that money, we had balance payment deficits across the board to other countries. Right. So other countries are looking at us like, wow, we have all this debt that we can't pay back, but we have all this gold. Something's not making sense. Right. And it isn't because we've kind of devalued gold at this point because the U.S. is to gold. So it's like, wait a second, if you guys are just printing extra money, you're kind of devaluing the currency. So the other countries on international waters are looking like, whoa, this is kind of a weird movement. And so, you know, it devalued the dollar in the eyes of international governments because, you know, we had we were printing more money than we had the gold to actually support it. So what countries opted to do was, oh, nah, the U.S. is going under. They can't they can't handle nothing. So let's round up our gold back. We go. So they started trading in their dollars for gold instead because they were like, man, what the U.S. is doing with their currency. We need to find another way. But in the meantime, so that we don't lose money, let's get that gold back. So they started cashing in their dollars for gold. Boy, oh boy, oh boy! Nixon did not like that, and I can't imagine why he would, right? Because it's like, you know, if we have seventy percent of the world's gold, now everybody's taking their gold back, and we and we don't have that much dollars because we're we're it's inflated. It's getting a little weird, right? So with inflation already high in the U.S., right, because Nixon was printing so much money, and him facing reelection, he was like, "Nah, I can't have an economic crisis on my hands, not when I need to be reelected," right? So he decided to sever the tie between the U.S. and gold. So you literally heard it here, man. Nixon, for for the sake of re-election and making sure we were good to go, he wanted us to be economically stable so that the country would look at him in the light of, you know, he's doing the right thing, he's doing well, right? So because of, you know, the electoral cycle or, you know, short-term political interests, he kind of modified something that would change the course of the dollar and economics in the U.S. for the rest of history, um, as we know it, right? Because the gold standard, technically, right, because there's going to be people say, it's a good thing we left the gold standard, it's a terrible idea we left the gold standard. Just from a technical perspective, the gold standard is the best for long-term price stability across the world. If the whole world has a standard that we are abiding by and we maintain that one standard, it's going to help us all long term. Right. But that doesn't necessarily fit the time frame of the electoral cycle, electoral cycle or short term political interest. So the gold standard being a great thing in the moment and it being the standard was not going to help Nixon out. He had to do what he had to do. Right. And it's arguable that, you know, the benefit that came out of this was that, you know, when times do get hard, like how we saw in 2020 with the coronavirus um, issue and pandemic, you can adjust rates to support economic stability. Right. Things were terrible in the U.S., but we were able to get stimulus and we were able to get another stimulus. Like we were able to get a lot of support from the government, which doesn't happen necessarily in a situation where there's a gold standard, because. You just can't hand out stimulus. It kind of just is what it is, right, because that's the standard. So what Nixon did did kind of help you know, us adjust rates as a country to support economic stability. And when other countries decided, oh, look at what the U.S. did over there. We're going to do that same thing over here. Now they could support their people as well. So it kind of helped everybody fend for themselves for the time being, if you will. But what does the global picture look like, right? So sometimes that could be something to think about. What is the global issue? So the dollar left being something that was to do with um the gold standard and became more about um trust in a country and and their influence. So it's like if we trust the U.S. that their dollar is what they say it is worth, then we'll exchange with them. And they also believe that the price we see our currency is worth what it's worth. And so they exchange with us. So it's more based on um trust and influence than it is based on numbers. Because the numbers were tied to the gold. So it's, you know, that's where fiat currency comes from. It's just printable and it's based on, like, trust and um, influence and not really based on real tangible numbers. Okay. Great. So that was the benefit that we kind of see that came out of this situation. But, right, um, all of that printing money, right, the analogy that I use is if you think of, you know, um, the U.S. currency as a pizza, um, printing more money, right, with the Federal Reserve and like all that, printing more money is not us getting more pizza or making mo- new pizza or buying more pizza. What it actually is is us taking the slices of pizza we already have and cutting them into thinner and smaller sizes. So what that means is you're still going to have one slice, like $1, but it might not be as big as that slice you had before you started slicing it up. So that's why when more money is printed, the dollar loses value because there's more within that, you know, circle that's a pizza. And so, you know, like I said, if you have a big slice, you cut the pizza eight ways and now you have to cut the pizza 16 ways and then 32 ways. Well, dang, now that one piece of slice I have isn't even comparable to half of the first slice I had because it's been cut up by so much. And that is why printing money reduces the value of currency right so in times of high inflation right we're going to you know bust bust a turn right now right so we, now we see why inflation kind of dim dims down the value of dollars right now we're going to get into the wealth gap talk right we've understood inflation we understood where we left the gold standard now we're going to get into the bag of okay this wealth gap thing right in times of high inflation right which happens when you print a lot of money which happens because the gold standard was left, right, because you have to print a lot of money to be able to save yourself in situations like coronavirus. The wealthy have more excess capital. In times of high inflation, the wealthy have more excess capital and can afford to expand their wealth in value-gaining assets, right? So when inflation is high, the wealthy have more money where they can say, look, let me actually gain more wealth. Let me purchase more things that are going to be value-gaining assets, Whereas the average Joe, right, the person just like, you know, me and you who is just trying to figure it out in life, right, has a tendency to have an increase in the expenses of their day to day, like rent and food. So while some people have an excess amount of cash, right, and excess, I'm not talking about an extra $100, I'm talking about a good sum of money laying to the side, they can actually invest in assets that are going to sort of be inflationary, so they're going to gain value in inflationary periods, whereas those of us who are just kind of living check to check are going to have to break down more of our money for rent and food, because food Everything in the grocery store is three to five percent more expensive. Your rent is 20% more expensive. The rent at the place that I was staying at not too long ago went up by yeah, like 40%. There was about a 30, 30 to 40% increase on rents because of inflation. So that just gives you, you know, that's free game right there. If if my rent increases by by 30% or 40%. That's 40% worth of money, right? And rent is the number one income killer in America, right? When you get your check, there's taxes and then there's housing. Those are going to be the two big chunks that are going to come out of your money. So if the second biggest chunk that comes out of my money, right, or maybe even the first, maybe sometimes rent could even be higher than your taxes. And if that is coming out of your account, right, and there's a 30% increase on that, just imagine what that does to your buying power. You don't have less money to invest, you have less money to save because you have more expenses. Not that you're, you upped your expenses, but your expenses just caught fire and are worth more money now, so you have to pay for that, right? So this is kind of what we're talking about. The wealthy have more excess capital and can afford to expand their wealth in value-gaining assets, whereas people like me and you have to increase our expenses on day-to-day things like rent and food, right? Another thing to consider businesses and equities increase in value during inflation because the cost of everything rises. So companies technically make more money, right? If there is inflation and I buy all my groceries from Foodline, well, guess what? Now Foodline's making more money, right? The dollar's lost value, but we're just talking about numbers specifically, right? If everything, if my groceries usually cost me $100, now they cost me 130 Food line just made $130 off me. It just is what it is. We can say, oh, the money's inflated, this and that, but no, that's $130 they now have. So they so you know their increase in prices is combating inflation. But my salary or my wage is not changing based on inflation. <laughs> so everything is going up in cost. My check is staying the same, and I have to buy the same goods, which are now more expensive. Right? So, in an inflationary scenario, businesses and equities increase in value because the cost of everything rises, right? So, the disproportionate access to final assets, uh, the disproportionate access to financial assets. My apologies, causes a wealth inequality, right? Because I don't have access to certain financial assets already, and now I definitely can't afford it because my cost of living has risen without my salary rising at all, right? So, the disproportionate access to financial assets causes a wealth inequality because the poorer you are, the less access you have to financial assets as a percentage of your wealth, And the more wealthy you are, a larger percent of your wealth you can actually hold in financial assets. Interesting, right? Even in situations where inflation happens and things are expensive, poor people might have to liquidate their assets to be able to afford to live, right? What happens when you don't have, you know, two years or three years of emergency fund or six months of emergency fund? What can you do? You have to now tap into the things that you might have invested in, Right. We've heard about people's not being able to make their mortgages and things of that nature. This is a reality. Right. And, you know, I keep on talking about wages and salaries. The reason why I keep talking about wages and salaries was because, I mean, this would just be less of a problem if wages actually kept up with inflation. Right. You work a job and every year they're giving you a raise of no percent, one percent, two percent. That's not helping you when when the average inflation is four percent. Every year you can afford less and less and you're working the same job year over year. It doesn't make any sense, right? Well, you know I'm saying it doesn't make any sense for the sake of the wealth gap conversation, but there are reasons why wages and things happen the way they do. We're not going to get into that, right? And think about this as well, right? If you think about the increase, right, in the price of the S&P 500 and the increase in wages year over year, right? It is harder and harder For the lower classes of America To afford to build wealth Simply Whenever somebody references the market Right They're talking about the S&P 500 Oh we're going to beat the market this year Got to try to beat the market The market on average gives you They're talking about the S&P 500 The 500 most profitable Or highest um, market capitalization Companies in the United States Right The top 500 companies in the United States Right And On average, right, in 1971, after working 30 hours at your job, on average, right, with the average salary, after working 30 hours at your job, you could afford to buy a share of the S&P 500, right? That should be the same in 2021, right? But let me tell you how inflation and the lack of wages increasing is affected. So in 1971, right? before the gold standard is sent away, right, and before we have this situation where dollars are just printed and inflation happens at a high, in a hyper sense, you are able to afford a share of the S&P 500 for th- after 30 hours of work. In 2021, it takes you 120 hours of work to be able to f- afford that same share of the S&P 500, meaning you have to work four times more to be able to afford the same thing. As in 1971, that is a wealth-building asset. This is, and this is wage disparity. Because if wages abide by inflation, you would still today be able to afford a share of the S&P 500 after only working 30 hours. Or let's even be generous, 35 hours. I got to work a five, extra, five extra hours 50 years later. That's not too bad. 50 years later, you got to work four times as much. This is the problem that we're facing right now with the wealth gap. This is where they say the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poor. People who are at the bottom of the, of the system have to now work four times as many hours just to be able to afford the most common wealth building asset, which is the S&P 500. Right? So this is the issue that we're facing, and I'm hoping that you guys are just taking all of this in. It's a lot of information, but it's very helpful. If you have to run this back again and again to really understand what is happening, please do that, because this is important. These are conversations that you probably should have with your family, you should have with your parents, you should have with your kids, you should have with your friends, so that they don't sleep on the opportunity of investing, right? So now we're going to get into how wealth is spread out in the different, for lack of a better word, classes in America, right? So if you think about the poorest in America, right, a net worth of, let's say, five figures, right? That's very low. That's like somewhere between $0 and $99,000, right? So that's your net worth, right? Five figures. About uh, 75% of the wealth of the poorest in America, right, five-figure income, or five-figure wealth, are tied into cash, a primary residence, and vehicles. And for some people, it's just cash and vehicles. Let me repeat that. The people in America who have, who have an average net worth of five figures have 75% of their wealth tied to cash, a primary residence, and vehicles. For a lot of them, it's just cash and vehicles, no primary residence. They pay rent. They don't pay a mortgage. So, that's the statistic number one, right? Let's go to the second one. As you climb the ladder from poorest to wealthiest, somewhere in the middle of that is the people who have a net worth of seven and eight figures. Sounds like a lot. It really isn't. This is people who probably worked their whole life and got a pension or people probably worked their whole life and have a 401k because that's going to probably equal that seven or eight. Maybe they bought a home that increased in value and or they paid off their home. Now that's just extra wealth. So seven and eight figure people. Right. Somewhere in the middle of of that. Right. On the way from poorest to wealthiest, you have the net worth seven and eight figures for those people. Right. As opposed to 75 percent, only 10 to 20 percent of their wealth is in cash, a primary residence, or vehicles. So the poorest in America has 75% of their wealth in it, but the seven- and eight-figure people only have 10 to 20% of their wealth in cash, a primary residence, and vehicles. About 50% of their wealth is in business, interests, real estate, not their primary residence, managed assets, and fixed income. Right? In that order business interests, real estate, not their primary residence, managed assets, and fixed income. And the last 30 to 40% of their money is in stocks, mutual funds, and retirement funds, right? So the middle of that wealth conversation in America or that middle sort of class, right, which clearly over here is seven to eight figures, so some of us be thinking we middle class, but we not even there. Seven to eight, figures, middle class, where you at, right? Their last 30 or 40% is in stocks, mutual funds, and retirement funds. And then 50% of it is in business interests and, you know, the other stuff that I mentioned. Now, at the end of that, right, of that ladder, because we went from poorest to middle wealthy to the ultra wealthy, right? That's going to be that nine and ten figure folk. Now, they have 65% of their money in business interests and real estate and, you know, um, that's not their primary residence. Managed assets and fixed income, they have 15% of their money in stocks, and they have less than 2% of their money in what the poorest in America have about 75% 75 of their wealth in. So the ultra-wealthy, only have about 2% of their wealth or less in what the poorest in America have 75% of their wealth in. This is a trickle down of the whole conversation we've been talking about. The rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer. The poor can no longer, like, instead of me working 30 hours to afford the S&P 500. Because of what happened in 1971, I have to work 120 hours to be able to afford a share of the S&P 500. But the wealthy have already had it. So now their wealth just keeps growing, and the disenfranchisement continues, and it just expands. Right? The ultra-wealthy only have 2% or less of their money in cash a primary residence or vehicles. That's why every time people say, oh, my gosh, Jeff Bezos or, you know, um, what's it called? Elon Musk, if they took their money and they broke it down into a dollar, dollar, dollar they could feed, it's like, no, their money isn't cash. We think of it as, oh, my gosh, that's so much money for a person. It's tied up in business interests. It's tied up in real estate, not their primary residence, right? Tesla got commercial buildings. Amazon got warehouses, right? Managed assets. Fixed income, right? Stocks, retirement funds, mutual funds. Their money is tied up. So that's what real wealth looks like. Real wealth doesn't look like, okay, let's cut the check. Real wealth looks like asset ownership because, like I said, with inflation, Tesla price is going to go up. Amazon delivery is going to go up. Apple going to sell the iPhone for a little more. And what does that mean for us? It's going to cost us more to pay for it which is going to take money out of the people who live check-to-checks' pockets, and now Apple has a higher profit margin because they sold for more money this year. But we all know what that really is. It's just inflated prices. But they're still getting paid. And whoever owns that stock, their stocks are still increasing in price. And the rest of us are caught lacking. Right? 10% of the wealthy own 84% of all stocks. You might look at this statistic and be like, oh man, eat the rich. I'm looking at this like, if that's what they're doing, looks like we got to buy stock. If 10% of the, if, if, and I made a mistake, not 10% of the wealthy own um, 84% of all stock, but 10%, um, how do I say this? Um, Actually, I think I do mean that, my bad. 10% 10% of the wealthy own 84% of all stock. That's, I think that is um, an accurate statement, right? It's because, you know, like we said, um, wealthy is a, is a range, right? It's not just the ultra wealthy. It's like all wealthy, right? So in a sample size of like, let's say 90 million people, let's say 90 million people across the world are wealthy. Let's even say it's 5 million people across the world are wealthy. There's 10% of that fraction that own 84% of all stock. That should be a head turner for you. Right? Another thing that I wanted to throw out as a statistic just so people could understand the gravity of the situation, right? We know that home prices are also increasing at a rapid pace, faster than wages, the same way the price of assets are going faster than wages too. Right? And there's a a statistic that 233, so um, the rate of people in their late 20s still living with their parents, right, is up 233% since 1971. Right? The rate of people in their late 20s still living with their parents is up 233% since 1971. Home prices are too expensive. People are not making enough money to be able to afford a home. This is real. Right? And we see some people do everything they can just to buy that home. Yet, less than 2% of wealthy people have their money in uh, primary residences. Most of their money's tied up in real estate that's not primary. Come on, let's stop playing. Let's focus on getting this bag. Let's focus on getting this money up. You know, I'm tired of the, the inequality talk. I mean, it is what it is. You know what I'm saying? I mean, when you're born into something like, I was born in 95, there's nothing I can do about this. It's just It just happens to be what it is. You know what I'm saying? It just is what it is. I was born and it was already like this. But that doesn't mean that I'm giving up hope on the ability of me to be able to change the fabric of the generations that come after me or the situation I find myself in right now, you know what I'm saying, or helping people to, you know, see the light and to start investing and to really focus on, you know, building wealth for themselves in all aspects. Right? So with all this being said, I would like to make a call to action, right? I would like everyone to do their research and consult with a financial advisor, right? Please do this. Consult with a financial advisor and see their take on buying the top five in the crypto market cap, right? Definitely Bitcoin and Ethereum, right? But see if you can invest in the top five in the crypto market cap, right? Because Bitcoin and its cohorts may just be that factor, that it factor needed to help The lower classes of America level the wealth playing field a little. They just might be the factor. You might say, Jermaine, what are you talking about? Bitcoin is up 14,000% in the last five years. We talking about inflation this year is 6%. We going crazy. Bitcoin is up 14,000% in the last five years. Ethereum is up 6,000% in the last five years. Cardano is up 1,000% in the last year. This that wealth talk. So we talk about the wealth gap. S&P is getting more expensive. You got to work 120 hours instead of 30 now. You know what I'm saying? You can't afford a home no more. 233% of you and your peers is now at home when in a previous life, 1971, you would have been getting ready to leave because you had opportunity and you had money, which clearly you no longer have. <laughs> right? So cryptocurrency could just be that it factor to change the game. As we head to Web3 and we get into the virtual landscape of the metaverse and all of that, crypto might just be that factor. So please consult the financial advisor. I'm looking at top five in market cap for crypto, crypto market cap. Just even if you don't know what it is, Google search it, just ask your financial advisor. And let's see if we can level this playing field. I'll give you the stats again Bitcoin is up 14,000 in the last five years, Ethereum is up 6,000 in the last five years, Cardano is up 1,000 in the last year. Let's get this money, people. I love y'all so much. Thank you for tuning in once again. I'm going to see what I can do with my microphone and the software and all that, but if this is how it has to be, at least it's still free game. Let's get it.